0: Welcome to the podcast of Calvary Baptist Church of Taylorville, Illinois. I hope this podcast stirs your desire for the things of God, and we hope that your faith in Christ will grow like never before. Now let's get into the podcast. Good morning, church. Hey, there we go. we got some lights on. I am here. Hey, so uh, I'm really excited to uh, to be with you today, and I want to just... Before I actually get started with my sermon, I want you to know what's going to be happening um, actually starting next week. We're going a little bit off script. I just sense that this is something uh, that the Lord would have us to do. So I'm going to be going off of script, out of uh, of our study called Together, and we're actually going to, today's going to be the last message in the series until after the first of the year. Do you know that? Because Christmas is right around the corner. Anybody excited about that? Um, it, but anyway, it will be after the first of the year with other things going on. And so for the next three weeks, I am just I really sense that God would have us to do a, an impromptu series, um, digging into maybe some of the understanding about what's happening in the Middle East. So the, the title of this next series, and I think it's going to be three weeks unless the Lord uh, determines one way or the other, it's going to be called Hamas, Israel, and the Second Coming of Christ. So um, stay tuned for that. We'll start that next week. Um, I'm I'm eager to get into it, but I'm also a little uh, tentative to get into it because when you start talking about things like that, you're start, you're talking about demonic powers that have actually been going on for thousands of years, and we're simply watching in real time what's happening overseas. But this has been going on for a long time, and the uh, and the powers driving all these behaviors uh, when they're called out and unsettled, it's you know we just have to trust in the Lord, Amen. So. I'll be getting into that um, starting next week and for the next few weeks after that. So it's going to be a little strange because today is actually the first message in Paul's writing to the letter of Ephesians, to the church in Ephesus, to the Ephesian people, to where he starts talking about family life. Everything else up until then, he's been either general in his teaching or talking about identity in Christ. and what identity and community, bringing that together in Ephesians 1 through 3. Starting in Ephesians 4, there was a transition to where it was then starting to bring the group together, bring the church together for them to explore what it means to be the church and explore the gifts that God has given every single person who calls himself a follower of Jesus and how those gifts are supposed to be rendered inside the church. And not just inside the church walls on a given church day, but just within the church body, no matter what day it is. Amen? whether it's Sunday or, or another day. And yet the transition happened. There was a transition point. I mentioned it last week. In Ephesians 5.21 and there's this this phrase, it's a catch-all phrase, a very general phrase about the type of relationship that all of us need to have with one another. We need to be in submission to one another, submit out of reverence for Christ. So we're to submit to one another, and this is just a general truth of all Christians. This should just be the behavior um, and the belief that we have is in humility to put others in front of ourselves and to lift others up and to see that we're that we're actually family, that we're actually. One, that we're supposed to be together because we're blessed together and living victoriously. So this is a transition starting in verse 22 of Ephesians 5 Dory where he starts talking about some family dynamics. And what may seem strange is there's kind of an abrupt change a little bit in his writing. And we're just going to leave it as a cliffhanger right here and then jump back in probably the end of December, the beginning of January. But we'll jump back in and we'll get all the context and all of those things rolling. I want to start here, though, before I even get into uh, Ephesians 5. If you have your Bible, you can flip to Ephesians 5. We're going to start in verse 22 in just a moment. But here's what I know about life. Expectations can be healthy and reasonable or unhealthy and unrealistic. Can't they? Expectations in our lives, I mean, we have expectations of how... Things are going to go. Maybe we have expectations of like, we're going to take this vacation and it's going to be awesome because we saved for it. We we chose the place we wanted to go to do the things we wanted to do. And all of a sudden, as soon as we get there and we're in the midst of it, they're like, I didn't expect this. I expected something a lot bigger than this. So expectations, they can be healthy. They can be. They can be reasonable or they can be unhealthy and unrealistic. We just never know exactly how it's going to turn out until we get there. Another example would be this. Some of us have, have foolishly said this to ourselves. If I will buy this broccoli, I will like eating broccoli. Some of you, you're like, or if I go out and buy all this fresh fruit and I put it into, into the drawer in my refrigerator, I'm going to eat all that fresh fruit before it goes bad. And then, so it was a good, it was a good expectation, but yet the failure point, maybe I'm just talking about our house. I don't know. It's like, hey, we're going to have grapes. And then they just shrivel, 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 and don't know what to do with them after that. So it's like, that's just the way it is. 80s ringtone. That was good. Um, Not to embarrass you, but it caught my attention. Sometimes we just think, well, if I start eating vegetables, then I'll just get healthy automatically. Some of us think, well, if I just get a gym membership, if I just buy a gym membership, then I'm going to be committed to go to the gym because after all, I'm paying that $29.99 to go to the gym. And what we find is the same lifestyle we had before we started paying for the gym membership is the same lifestyle we have after we have the gym membership, except now we're just giving away $30 a month. There's nothing wrong with that expectation, but it's a delivering on the expectation. Sometimes these things seep into our, our everyday lives too and even our, in, into our spiritual lives. Sometimes people think, well, if I just simply go to church, then I'll know everything about Jesus and my life will be just as it would be as if I had never sinned. And that's just not true either. I mean, Jesus takes you on the journey of spiritual wholeness, and he takes you, once you repent of your sins, you're cleansed of those sins, but yet we still have to live with the consequences of those sins. And even further, sometimes we have to deal with the consequences of other people's sins cast upon us. And then we have to bring the consequences of other people's sins into our walk with Jesus for him to heal us of those wounds, but that is not overnight, folks, I'm a person who's been healed of many, many different wounds, and I, I just want you to know that that offer is available to you. Give your life to God. He, he and He alone can heal wounds, and he will, he will heal wounds when you commit them to Him. Stop trying to heal them yourself. Stop trying to just do all of these things under your own power. More than likely, it was being under your own power that got you in trouble to begin with, if your life is like mine. Even in marriage, sometimes we have just expectations, don't we? I mean, I remember when Marla and I got married, now we're, we're about 30 years married. Here in a couple weeks, it's 30 years married. And I remember we before we got married, give it up for my wife, she's amazing. But I remember, I tell you that 30 years, just not so, not so that you would clap, although I thank you for it, but I tell you that 30 years, because 30 years ago, we had a, we had a resolve to, to never get a divorce, but we had no idea what it meant to be married. And while we were resilient in some ways, we were also stubborn in many other ways. So it was was the pathway of both of us in in time being submitted to God that God would cause us to, to lean towards him and then lean towards one another. And our marriage has not been perfect, but I can tell you I'm not the person and Marla's not the person that we were 30 years ago. And 30 years ago, we thought we were okay. That's, what's, that's the part that's, that's really kind of has me in a little mind-bender. Thought we were okay. Some of you wives, you expect your husbands to have it all together because they're men. You expect them to be able to do all the things that your dad did or your uncle did or your grandpa did. You expect them just to, just to do everything that you tell them to do or that you want them to do. And they're not equipped to do all these things. Sometimes that's an unhealthy expectation. Sometimes you husbands, you expect your wives just to be a better version of your mother. And then they want, you wonder why your wife is not your mother because you didn't marry your mother, you married your wife. And then, and then you're like, wait a minute, wait a minute, this isn't the way that it was supposed to go. Because of this and because of the way that we have experienced life, what we do is we have all sorts of expectations when we go into marriage, when we go into the a, a committed relationship. And people have marital expectations based off several different things, based off of, one, past experiences. And I would just say in past experiences, I would say pain. Pain. So we have expectations based off of past experiences. Sometimes it's it's just based off of pop culture. Sometimes it's based off of our personal desires, and usually that's a knee-jerk reaction to something that happened to us or the parents who raised us. So our desires are shaped by that, and sometimes it's shaped by good and bad theology. And to deny this is really to deny reality because all of us have these things that we go into life with. We go into, whether you're a Christian or non-Christian, we all have these things that we have to have a reckoning before we can actually have a healthy marriage. Matt Chandler, in his book, The Mingling of Souls, a book I would refer on marriage, he said, We live in the middle of Imagine by John Lennon and The Authority Song by John Mellencamp, the two Johns. And, and he says the reason why he chooses the word imagine is because the word imagine, which is a beautifully written song, it's this, it's this song written about a, a utopian existence. And utopia doesn't exist. It's a song that talks about the benefit of what if we had a world with no religion and no, no borders and no hell and no heaven, nothing but peace. But also what John Lennon is saying there, what if we just had a life with no rules? And that's where it goes off the rails, and yet we're also being bookshelved with John Lennon or with John Mellencamp in the authority song. And to quote the lyrics from that song, and some of you have no reference, but you will now: "I fight authority, and authority always wins." And that type of of sentiment towards people, towards authority, towards relationships, towards anything that is considered traditional or biblical, those ideas get in the way of what God has for us. And if we go into our marriage with this kind of restlessness, what if we could just have a marriage with no rules and what if it is I could just be my own authority? Man, that's just gonna wreak havoc. And maybe that's the reason why even inside the church and outside of the church, the divorce rate is not that different. You see, marriage, the way that God entailed is this, marriage is a sign and wonder for the mission and glory of God. And God has given us roles to display the gospel. So marriage is a sign and wonder of the mission and glory of God. We're going to see this today, and we're also going to see this when we jump back into the series, but Marriage itself is a sign and wonder to the watching world that they would see us and they would see our marriage and they would see that the way that the, that the husbands love their wives unconditionally, wholehearted, do anything for them and see the way, the way that the wife submits to that leadership within the husband because the husband is willing to die for her. And because of that, the watching world has no, uh, they have no general understanding of this themselves. So it's a sign and wonder of the mission and glory of God. But also our roles, the gender roles, display something of the gospel, display something of God himself. Ephesians 5, 22 through 24 says this. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. His body of which he is the savior. Now as this church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. I know the heaviness of this topic when we start talking about submission. I get it. You know, anything, anytime we start talking in marriage, anything about marriage as far as the Bible is concerned most people lock up and some people just want to step away and some people will say, well, wait, 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 wait. And most of the reason why we say wait, 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 wait is because we have been impacted by someone else or something else that is disallowing us to receive the word of God. So what God says here, specifically in this passage, and he's talking about the relation of wives to husbands. Notice what it says in verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. The word submit is the Greek word hypotasso, And what it means is to place or arrange under, to subordinate, to bring under influence. John Stott in his commentary, he said in one word, the the word hypotasso in the Greek sense to the English sense, he says there's one word that that that, that conveys. It's the word order. It's the word order. So the idea of hypotasso or or subjection, or to place or arrange under is not a lesser role. Notice what it says in verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. So both of you, again, we look at this in the flow of the Scriptures. Paul had just spent chapter upon chapter upon chapter explaining to them both male and female who are in Christ their value, their dignity, and their worth. And he's just explained it over and over and over that they, male or female, they're both blessed, they're children of God, they're, they're redeemed, they're forgiven. They've, inhe- they've received an inheritance, the inheritance of the Holy Spirit to guide through men and women, husbands and wives. There's no differentiation within the family of God as to who gets to be in the family of God. See, the Apostle Paul by way of context, has just washed all these words over the church. And then he gets into the context of how two people in a marriage, husband and wife, how they're supposed to relate to one another and how they're supposed to complement one another. I don't share this all the time, but I do want to share this with you. There's two different slides I want to give you four principles to help better understand the Bible, to help better understand the Bible. So there's going to be four principles. Again, they don't just apply to this passage. They apply to every passage in the Bible that you read. But maybe you want to take a picture of this in your own Bible reading so you sit and have a sense of what you're reading and how to understand it. A lot of errors happen when when we start talking about the Bible and wrapping them up into our culture instead of observing the culture that it was written out of and what God intended. Principle number one of good uh, Bible interpretation is this. Interpretation must be based on the author's intention and meaning, not the reader. In other words, when God inspired Paul to write this letter to the church in Ephesus and every other inspired work in the Bible, it was not... Based upon, well, I just wonder how they're going to receive this in the 21st century in middle America in the fall of 2023. What the interpretation was based off the author's intention. The, the great thing about the Bible is it's timeless. It does speak into every time and every circumstance. It does. Whether it was a thousand years ago in primitive times, or if the Lord tarries and we're still here on earth in another thousand years, the word of God will ring true throughout all of the span of those years. So principle number one, interpretation must be based on the author's intention of meaning, not the reader. Second principle is interpretations must be done in the context of the passage, which is why I've... I've been deliberate to explain to you how Paul got to where he is right here in Ephesians 5.22. Principle number three, interpretations must not begin with our culture in mind. They can't begin with what's going on in our world and then go to the Bible to see if the the Bible verifies what's going on in our world. This is actually a common error when in the world of prophecy with wondering, is this the second coming of Jesus? Should be waiting on the rapture? Should I be outside? Like, what, what should I be doing? What should I be doing right now? Is Jesus' coming, like, imminent? Is it coming right now? And what we, what we tend to do is we interpret the times before we interpret the Bible. We should interpret the Bible and then through our times, not the other way around. Because what we do... If we get that wrong, we end up twisting the Bible to fit any situation to make it say what we want it to say. And a lot of good people have gotten that wrong. Principle four, look for principles and practices that are biblically consistent and applicable in any given culture. They're not so specific to time and place. God, God's book uh, and the collection of writings is Timeless. I wanted to, to give that bit of understanding, and I do this a couple of times a year. I share very similar slides, so we, we always go back to what, okay, the Bible says this, how can I know that it's true? And how can I make sense of my world without my, word, my world warping the Word of God? Let's get back in. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. I have a a rhetorical question of sorts, but the the question I have for you is, what kind of woman does our culture glamorize? What type of woman does culture glamorize? Uh, We could go a bunch of different answers here. We could go a bunch of different answers, and I know when we get into life group, there's probably going to be a lot of answers there too. We, We... We tend to lift up the empowered woman, the woman who doesn't need the help of a man. We also tend, culturally, we lift up the highly sexualized woman who uses her sexuality as a a tool to get what she wants. I'm not saying you do this, I'm saying this is what happens culturally. To where it's like if, if, if a woman can use her sexuality to manipulate a man or to manipulate a situation, then she, then she would do that at all, at all costs to get what she wants. Again, I'm not talking about the type of woman we should honor in the church. I'm talking about the type of woman that is glamorized in our culture. I know you find I have a hard time probably disagreeing with that, and I'm not trying to have an agreement or not. But the reason why we got to the place where we are, where it seems, and I'm not trying to upset anyone, but I think one of the reasons why we got to the place where we are, where the people who are under the most attack are actually men, middle class, white men around the world are the most under attack, and the people who are generally the most glorified, and I choose that, that word specifically, it is it, the people who are the most glorified are actually women. And it, and it has actually gotten distorted, in my opinion. And it's gotten distorted because of, I think, what's happened several years ago. There's been four waves of feminism. Some of them brought about great things. Some of them not. The first wave of feminism had, had largely to do with women being able to vote, which they should have been able to vote to begin with. And and it's unfortunate that they even had to have that movement to have them allowed to vote. That one uh, happened the late 19th, early 20th century. The second wave of feminism happened in the 1960s. Some of you lived through it. It continued through the 1990s. It was a wave asking a bunch of different questions, ripping apart different common beliefs and different authority structures and different types of things got woven into, into that movement. And really what uh, what happened through that movement largely is the Equal Rights Amendment, and again, there, there were some things that that should have been right and that they fought for the right thing, but also the other thing that was a result of that was Roe versus Wade and I have a hard time thinking that that was actually good for society when there 's been a generation of the would-be children who never saw the light of day because they were aborted in some office or in in some place that was, quote-unquote, medicinal. This is also a byproduct of feminism. By the way, when I researched this, I actually went to feminist websites to research this. This is what they were saying. This isn't, again, me saying this about them. The second wave of feminism also got, it twisted the idea of identity politics. The same thing you hear about now if you're paying attention to what's going on in the world. You hear identity politics. That was actually introduced way back then, 1960s to 1990s. Again, the Equal Pay Act was a result in 1963, Roe versus Wade, 1973. Third wave of feminism was built on this this idea of We can redefine body, gender, sexuality, marriage. We can redefine all these things because we will challenge every authority structure. Seeking to demonize men specifically, demonize marriage because the the idea being that that men were the, the root cause in what was happening in marriage. And there was no single piece of legislation that was the target of that movement. It was just... Instability was the target of that movement. Just bring instability to any sort of institution or structure. Fourth wave of feminism is not even like the other three, not like the first two. It's kind of like the third one, but it's really undefined. And if you know the Bible, I would just tell you one of the, one of the main articles that feminists use today is, is, a, is a, a magazine called Jezebel. So just think about that. Those of you who know the Bible and know what Jezebel represents. So now, within the fourth wave of feminism, with this Jezebel spirit, it's actually been hijacked by the LGBTQ+ plus community to where it's not even about women's rights as what they once said. Now it's been just drawn into all of these of the social agenda, to where now women actually don 't even have a voice where actually in the first wave of feminism, it was so that they would have a voice. So it's actually twisted all the way around. Historically, socially empowered women become overpowering and overbearing women without being discipled by Jesus. Historically, this just happens. And again, this isn't one generation against another generation. Fact check everything I just said. My point in all of this is when the Apostle Paul gives this message, there are some timeless truths there. But of course, because of what's been happening and the sensibilities that we have and the things that we're sensitive to within our culture and what we've observed over the last 40, 50 years, of course we should be a little bit nervous when when we read this and we should be even more dependent on God. Say, God, I hope you're right. Please let this be right. Holy Spirit, help me live in light of your truth. This is not something that we should take lightly. Trust me, the Apostle Paul didn't take this lightly either. When he was giving, giving rather, this instruction, it was with three different worldviews as it pertains to marriage. The first was the, the Jewish worldview as it pertains to marriage because the first audience would have been Jewish people, but they were influenced by two other groups also. They were Jewish by tradition but also they were influenced by the, the Greeks and also the Roman culture. And I'll take these three apart now. This is what the Apostle Paul was, was dealing with head on. Some of the rabbis agree that, Jewish rabbis agree, that there was a, a common saying in the, the morning prayer for Jewish men that they would, that they would thank God that, that God had not made them a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. Because a woman in their culture had no legal rights whatsoever. The only rights she had was the rights that actually the husband or the father, if she was not married, that would be given to her. She had no rights whatsoever. And to make matters worse, the wife had no rights of divorce at all. So irregardless how difficult it was, no matter if there was abuse, no matter what the struggle was, how much pain that she endured, there was no legal right for divorce. Unless, of course, the husband ditched her or uh, it was all hinging upon the husband. But yet for the husband, the process to get, div- to get a divorce for the husband was incredibly easy. So there were a lot of women who were They were fearful because they were in a Jewish marriage and then they were abandoned within the Jewish marriage so they were skittish to get married again or they were within a Jewish marriage but didn't have a voice for themselves. The second impact was from the Greek world. Each of these get just a little worse in my opinion. In the Greek world, one of the statesmen and uh, orators by the name of, Demosthenes, he said this. He says, we have courtesans for the sake of pleasure. That's prostitutes, by the way. We have courtesans for the sake of pleasure. We have concubines for the sake of daily cohabitation. We have wives for the purpose of having children legitimately and of having a faithful guardian for all of our household affairs. So for them, there was... Marriage, it was just a matter of convenience to care for the kids and care for the house. And the men weren't loving their wife well. They weren't doing anything for their wife. They were simply just, I guess, providing a roof for their kids. And then the husband would have an allowance to go do whatever he wanted to do. As a matter of fact, the women in those respectable Greek classes, they took no part in public life. During certain mealtimes, the wives actually couldn't even be in the same room. These are the type of mindsets that Paul was speaking to. A respectable woman in Greek society would be one who understood that there was going to be no companionship and no fellowship in the marriage because that was impossible. In Rome, it was still a little worse. For the first 500 years of the Roman Republic, there had not been one single case of divorce. But then... In about 234 B.C., the first divorce happened, and then divorce was rampant. The philosopher Seneca, who's been popularized now, he writes that women were married to be divorced and divorced to be married. Another historian by the name of of Jerome, he said this. He said that there was a woman who, who was married to her 23rd husband, and she herself was his 21st wife. This, this is the mindset that the Apostle Paul is, is talking about. And now he's saying, wives submit to your husbands as, as if to Christ, but then he's going to continue on and he's going to level up the responsibilities for the men and totally blow up the Jewish way of life, the, the Greek way of life, and the Roman way of life and says, no, now you actually need to be willing to lay down your life for your wife just as Christ did the church. So for us, we may look at the, the waves of feminism and whether or not you agree with them or not, I guess that's up to you. But we may look at those and say, well, wow, that just doesn't seem fair. The Apostle Paul knows that he is he's speaking to these people and it's the timeless word of God that's permeating those societies and it actually is bringing freedom in marriage. Freedom to love God, freedom to love one another, a spiritual unity, a physical unity and a spiritual unity a unity that they could not have on their own. And yet, I want to go back kind of quickly into Genesis 2. Because when we start talking about gender, I think it's important that we go back to uh, the foundations of Scripture. So let's go into Genesis 2, starting in verse 15. And we're going to look at, at the two genders This is after God had said that the two genders are equal in value and dignity and worth before God. Verse 15 of Genesis 2, this is how man has been created and now the purpose of of the wife in conjunction with the husband. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and care for it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone, and I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God has, had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see that he would name them, and whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord caused the man to fall into a deep sleep while he was sleeping. He took one of man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made the woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. It's Isha, for she was taken out of man, and that's the Hebrew word ish. So ish, isha. So there's several different things I could preach series, multiple series, off of what God is saying in this passage. But I'll just draw out a couple principles for us to better understand maybe what God is getting at here. In verse 18... God had said to Adam, he says, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So it's not good that men would be alone. Can I get a good hearty amen from all my men in the house? It's not good that we're alone. And not to fall into a bunch of stereotypes that we'll starve to death and we'll be helpless, no, no, those kinds of things, but it's not good that we're alone. Notice this, and what I, I disagree when, when people say that Uh, dogs are man's best friend, by the way. Verse 19, Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air, and he brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. Awesome. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. Throughout all creation, Adam needed more than nature, animals, being outdoors. It was right that that Eve was created to complement, to be one with Adam. Adam needed her, and I believe that she needs him. Notice in verse 15 also that man is to work for the glory of God. Notice That the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and care for it. This is before sin was introduced, by the way. It's good that a man works. I told you this a couple weeks ago. I'll tell you many more times. It's good that a man works. A man should not be idle. He should be working. He should be providing. He should be protecting. He should be earning earning a living. Caring for his family. Doing the things that, that are good for his home. Verse 18 and 20, I draw out this principle. Women are a gift from God to be loved and honored, not worshiped or feared. They're a gift from God to be loved and honored, not worshiped or feared. Again, verse 18, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him is what God said. God took the initiative to help because they were to compliment one another. They were to be like, like left hand, right hand, one using, needing, loving, serving, caring for, honoring one another. The word "helper" in the original Hebrew means the one who supplies strength in the area that he is lacking. One who's supplying strength in an area that he's lacking. Again, there's there's so much here. But men and women are equal but not identical. We're equal before God, but we're not identical in form or function. I was gonna use the illustration of a of a little ratcheting screwdriver I have where you can just change the tip on the end of the screwdriver. Because culturally, maybe that's the best picture as to what culture is saying. It's like gender is fluid, gender is what you want it to be. You can just it's just a matter of just, you know. Replaceable parts or removable parts. Take whatever conclusion you want from what I just said. But that's not what God entailed. God entailed something to bring about the beauty and radiance of his character through through male and female and the way that they complement one another in marriage. Not that one gets trampled over, and not that one dominates the other, that they both live in loving submission one being the leader of the home, that being Adam. But we we see the the situation we're in if we look in Genesis 3.16 because that passage says this, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. This is the consequence of sin, by the way. With pain, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. The reason why in the back of the female mind, she thinks that she can do it better than men or the man in her life is not because she inherently can, although she may be able to. It's the reason why she just inherently thinks that she can is because that is, a, that is actually downfall of sin. The tendency to just get out of the way and let me do it, that's because of sin. The, the tendency to, for, for a woman to not even have a voice and just to, to sit back in the sideline and let somebody else run all over her and dominate her, that also is, is a consequence of sin, probably a sin that's something that's happened to her to where she doesn't feel empowered or even equal as a woman, which she should. But this tendency that the Word tells us about your desire will be for your husband It will to take the authority that God's given him. Your desire will be to rule over him, to to cause disorder, to disrupt what's going on in the home. So you take the higher position. So you make him feel disrespected. All of this is, is what Satan would want as he's seeking to destroy the family unit. And it hasn't stopped. He's simply been doing it for a long time. The key to all of this, in verse 22, it says, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. It doesn't mean that, A, it doesn't mean that every woman needs to submit to every man. And that's actually been a common occurrence decades ago. And that was was simply not true. But when Paul says, As to the Lord, It doesn't mean that the wife is subject to her husband in the same way that she she submits to the Lord. It doesn't mean that he is the Lord over her. It means if she's living in submission to God and he's living in submission to God, then his authority and and the order of that home can be trusted. That's what that means. Is that If she's living under and in submission to the husband and the husband is living in submission to god then his leadership and guidance can be trusted there are a lot of circumstances i can't speak into about people who are in, in a marriage with an unbeliever or something like that i don't have time to go into all of that but i hope you understand from my heart what i'm saying is submission does not mean doormat it doesn't mean inferior and it doesn't mean being controlled it means that you have a mind. It means you have a story. It means you have the Holy Spirit, which means that you also, if you are in a, in a, a marriage and you are to, to help in areas where he is lacking, bringing your strength to help where he is lacking so that he can lead and you don't feel like you need to supersede his leadership, but you come alongside him and help him lead. He needs you. Submission also is not blind or absolute following. It's not blind or absolute following. I had a shocking situation that happened in marriage with, with a, a lady that served the Lord really well and she, she was just so kind and so gentle, but she was also misguided, I believe. She was a, a widow and... She lived alone, but she was so desiring of having another man in her life. And then when she had another man came into her life, and he also was a widower, and it was was a great situation, and they, they fell in love very quickly. But one of the things that she was the most eager to do was to literally get behind him and carry his Bible behind him. And I thought, that would just seem so odd to me. Because, sure, there's an honor there, but I thought, no, you have a much stronger position in your marriage. You don't need to live out of that story that you received 60 years ago. You need to live out of the story that God is writing, right in Ephesians. That he's to lovingly lead you, and you're to submit to his authority, but it doesn't mean that you are less than him. And ladies, you are not less than the man that you're with. In the eyes of God, you are equal. Shall we pray together? God, we thank you for loving us and caring for us. God, I pray that you would just help us. I know that I used a lot of words, and I pray, God, that you would just help us to understand what it is that that you're saying to us. And Lord, I don't want to make light of the trauma that many people have endured. So many of us are living out of past trauma that we don't even know we're living out of past trauma. And we need the mind of Christ. We need the the new heart and the new spirit that you that you prophesied would happen in Jeremiah. We need the spiritual anointing of understanding. We need the the revelation of God that brings courage. And Lord, for some, we also need the revelation of humility. And perhaps what we need to do is just to go to God and say, God, I've actually made a mess of things. I understand now that things should have been different and that they, they, they weren't as they were supposed to have been. And we just need to go to God and say, God, I'm sorry. I did that. I didn't know why. I was careless. I was reckless. Will you forgive me? Some of us just need to pray for our marriage because we're going through a difficult time right now. And maybe the words that you're using You're not actually talking to one another. You're just lobbing verbal grenades into each room, hoping to wound the other a little bit more than you did last time, or maybe the more that they wounded you last time. And God, we need confession. We need forgiveness. We need repentance. We need to not only acknowledge that to you, but we also need to acknowledge that to our spouse. May today be a day that we draw a line in the sand to where you say, God, as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. No matter what it takes, no matter how hard it gets, no matter how many tears I have to shed, we will serve you. Would you stand? Who could be honest this morning and we don't need the house lights on. I'll be able to see the hands through the shadows. But who'd be honest this morning and say, you know what, my marriage needs a tune-up. Would you raise your hand and say, my marriage needs a tune-up. Needs a spiritual tune-up. Thank you so much. Who in here would just be so bold to say, maybe the, the, the husbands in here would just be so bold to say, you know what, I haven't loved my wife in the way that I should. Raise your hand if if that's you and you'd like prayer for that. Thank you. Maybe for you wives, maybe you just be so bold and courageous to also raise your hand and say, you know what? I haven't respected my husband in the way that I should. Would you raise your hand if that's true of you? Thank you. God sees you. God knows you. God wants to forgive you. He's rewriting your story. He wants to wipe the slate clean. I'll pray and let's respond as God wants us to. Father, I pray for all the marriages. God, marriage is it it is clearly a sign and wonder to the mission and glory of God. But it doesn't mean it's easy. Men like me have made a mess of things and haven't loved my wife in the way that, that you love me, whether you love us. Some wives have not respected their husbands for a bunch of different reasons. I'm sure. God, I pray that you just be with them when they repent of that sin. God, I pray that you would just draw them closer to you, remind them that they're loved, they're not forgotten. Lord God for the for all of us God as we just sing this song God we just respond saying that we're desperate for you we long for you we're nothing without you Holy Spirit lead in the way that you see fit Amen